0: okay well if by chance you happen to glance at the worship bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning you may have noticed a little change in it there in that section right above the liturgy or right above the order of worship whatever you want to call it it looks a little different and if you would have read it you would know that we are not in hosea this morning We're going to be in 2 Peter. And so you can open up your Bible to there now, to the second epistle of Peter. It's near the very end of the New Testament. Hopefully this won't throw you off too much, having sermons of 2 Peter sprinkled in here and there between sermons in Hosea. Part of the reason we're doing this is to to break things up a little bit, and more importantly, to grant you to more exposure to the Bible, to God's Word. We want, uh, that is, the elders here at First Family Church, want and desire for you all to know more of your Bible, to know doctrine and to know theology more. In other words, to know God more in the hope that knowing God more will lead to more grace and peace in your life, which are the very things that the Apostle Peter mentions here in our text for this morning. We hope that greater exposure to more preaching will help you to know God's love more, to instruct you more diligently in the Christian life, leading to a greater assurance in the faith, a greater joy in the faith, a greater delight in God Himself. So uh, we have the Sunday evening service as well available to you. We're going through the Baptist Catechism there now. And by the way, we're almost done with that which ends up taking us to many different places in the Bible, exposing us to many different books in the Bible. And then after that, most likely we'll probably preach through the Second London Confession. And then after that, probably just get to preaching through different books as well too, unless some sort of special need comes up. But we want to make sure that opportunities exist for you to sit under preaching that those things are available. It is the primary means of grace. It is the main way in which God grows us in other words, through the ministry of his word, his preached word. Granted, it's not the amount of Bible knowledge that we will have, that we have that has us able to stand right before God this morning and every day. Peter even makes a similar point to that in the passage for this morning. But it is certainly to know what the Word of God says. He has preserved this book for us, friends. He has, by His divine power, set it forth for us to be able to have it today, even in the first place. And by grace, we should know it. As somebody said one time, and it's been like this distant fear in the back of my mind ever since someone told this to me. I don't remember who said it or when I heard it. But He, he made this point. You know, can you imagine having been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60, 70 years, by the grace of God perhaps, and you, you die and you go to heaven, and then in heaven you run into Micah, or you run into Haggai, maybe Hosea, and they say to you, so, hey, well, what did you think of my book? <laughs> and you kind of like, you know, you look over your shoulder, making sure they're not talking to somebody else. And you say, well, you know, I, I like it, but you can't really remember what it was that they had to say. Uh, you know, if, if you've only been like a believer for a decade or so, maybe you complete ignorance. That would be totally understandable. But you know, I, I don't. I've, I'm approaching two decades now myself, and I've read through the Bible. I don't know how many times, and I have a hard time retaining things. And so I imagine in this fake scenario that I would try to like juke the prophet and be like, oh, well let me tell you about Jesus. And you know at that point, he would probably just stop me and be like, oh, you know, interesting. God used me to write a whole book that's in the Bible that ultimately is about Jesus. And so that's how like, my made-up nightmare ends, like, <laughs> awkwardly, and has me thanking God that's not what heaven is actually going to be like. But we want to be exposed to the books of the Bible and, and through preaching through those books to help us to better understand them. And so who knows, in God's grace, how long First Family Church will last but our desire is to preach through all every book so that we can all have, in so much as we are here for it, some clarity and understanding of what God wants us to know through his special revelation, through his holy word. And so we are in 2 Peter this morning rather than Hosea. We'll have sermons on 2 Peter sprinkled throughout the series on Hosea. Most of us are probably well acquainted with Peter and his life, but we should also be really well acquainted with what he has to say to us here in this letter that he has written. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to, in prayer to bless our time in his word this morning. The reading of the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in 2 Peter. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we know, Lord, that its revelation is exactly what you desire for us to know. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us better memories, that you would help us to listen well, that you would cause us to rightly understand it. Certainly, Lord, that you would help me to only speak what is truth and that you would prevent me from speaking anything that is false. Because we want to know you. And we pray that you would facilitate that this morning as we sit, and as we go through your word together. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, just two verses for us this morning. And this is really just the epistolary introduction of the text that we have before us. First blush, maybe it kind of seems like there's not a lot going on here. I mean, basically, it's just Peter saying, Hey, it's me, Peter, hello, and now let's get into this. But don't you worry I have found that these two verses are loaded with important truths, not forced upon things into the text, but true things from our passage. And so we'll have no problem using our time considering just these two short verses this morning. But first, let me introduce you to the title of this series that we are going to embark on. calling this series through 2 Peter, Admonition Against Apostasy. Admonition Against Apostasy. That's ultimately what this epistle, this letter seems to be about. Uh, There's other things throughout, but ultimately that seems to be the main point of it, with a pulled back view especially. Admonition is a word that we perhaps don't really use a lot today, but I couldn't resist the alliteration of AAA, of of (laughs) admonition against apostasy. But nevertheless, it's a word loaded with meaning, Uh, biblical meaning especially. We actually don't see the word, and this is somewhat interesting, I think it's just because of our modern language, but we don't actually see the word admonition in the English Standard Version at all, the, the Pew Bibles that we have, but you would see it in other English translations. Though, we do see the verb form in the ESV, which is admonish. So consider Psalm 81.8 in the ESV, which says, O oh, hear, my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. So you see even from the context there that an admonition is something that is said to bring about a change. An admonition is something that is, is, something that is given to bring about a change. The Apostle Paul admonishes Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.14. And the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. And he urges the Thessalonians to admonish one another in 5.14. And those are just the places that the ESV uses the actual word admonish. But the concept of what an admonishment is, is in every book of the Bible. It is instruction that is meant to bring about a change, a corrective, either through encouragement or through warning. And we as God's people are constantly in need of such words, brothers and sisters. Not a hostile, not in a hostile way, but in a loving way, as God perseveres us and He sanctifies us. And that should be apparent to us because of how frequently we see admonishments in God's Word. In the biblical sense of the term, an admonishment is not really something that you would give to an unbeliever. What they need is to be converted. They need to be born again. Uh, They need to repent for the first time. What they need is a rebuke. What a false teacher needs often is a sharp rebuke. Although believers can use rebukes from time to time as well. Don't get me wrong about that. But admonishments come to us on the pages of Scripture and from beloved saints because we all still struggle against the flesh. We all still struggle against sin. And we live in a world that, generally speaking, hates God and is stained by the fall of Adam and the sins of every man and woman and child. And sin thrives in such conditions. And admonishments are then used by the Lord to preserve us from sin and falling away if that's possible, and we'll have time to discuss that in this series later. And sometimes, perhaps, it could even be used to bring about a true conversion in the life of one who is self-deceived about their salvation and is a part of a church, but doesn't really have that salvation that they claim to. And in this letter, these admonishments come in light of a problem that was developing in the church that in Peter's day already, the problem of apostasy. People were departing from the faith. People were claiming to be a part of the faith, but then some of them started teaching false doctrines and others were carried away by it. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing up upon themselves swift destruction. Notice it says, they arose among the people, not from outside the people, but they even actually arose among the people. Apostasy, apostasia in the Greek, is a term that we use to describe people who at one time professed the true faith, but then are presently now rejecting it. It is even possible for one to consider themselves a Christian, but actually at that same time to actually be an apostate because of the doctrines that they believe. They, they fall away from what is true, And so we will have plenty of time to consider apostasy, the possibility of it, and what is really happening with it in light of someone's profession of faith in future sermons. But this is what is compelling Peter to write here and now. It's very similar to Jude's epistle even, the second chapter of 2 Peter actually. Uh, But Peter here, in his last known written correspondence, is wanting to prevent people from being lost. He's he's wanting to steer people away from the cliff. It's a loving thing to do. It's what you do for your family. You don't want people to be lost. We don't want any of us in here to drift away from the faith, to be lost, to depart from it. That's what apostasy is. It's people departing from the family, the family of God. And that's not what we desire to see of anyone though we do see it happen. Uh, Again, more on that in future sermons. But even in our own families, we don't want to see someone physically lost even, right? Um, You know, a a month ago, maybe it was two months ago, I'm not sure, but we went on our first big trip with our family since having the the new baby in, so there's six kids now, and we weren't sure if we were ready to do that. We went to a car show with a couple of friends, and sure enough, we weren't ready to do that yet. (laughs) um about i don't know how I mean, anna and i were already probably short with each other because we're not sleeping and stuff and but then halfway into it we end up losing ollie and you know we, we start and it's, there's hundreds of people there maybe thousands of people there and we're trying to do everything that we can do now that i think about it, this is the second time we've misplaced ollie uh, <laughs> but we're, we're trying to do everything that we can do to get him back we're in the process of doing that And then certainly when we ended up finding him or when he found us actually through help that he received from somebody else, we rejoiced and we were glad. But we were trying, we were in the process of doing everything that we could do to bring him back because he was lost. Well, that's what Peter is doing here. He's under divine inspiration, writing to prevent and turn people away from being lost. And so generally speaking, here's a brief outline of the whole book. All right, generally speaking. First, Peter's letter begins with encouragement, sprinkled in with some warnings as well, and uh, some statements about the truth and uh, the truth of Christ and His Word, about the gospel. And then he goes on at length in chapter two about these false teachers, uh, these false apost- these apostates. And there's a lot of similarities with here in Jude. And then in chapter three, he provides correction concerning doctrine, and finally, a conclusion that ties everything together. More on that in a moment. But that's why I wanted us to see this short often neglect a letter as admonition against apostasy. That's what he's doing for his original audience. That's what he's doing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us as well. It's Peter's love for Christ's church, uh, of which he is part of even, that is compelling him to write these things. Uh, simply speaking, he's doing what his master, Christ Jesus, told him to do after the resurrection. You remember what Jesus tell Simon Peter to do there, right? This is after the resurrection. It's John uh, 21. After Peter's denial of Christ, Jesus then comes to Peter, and Peter is fishing, I believe, and he tells him three different times, feed my sheep. He tells him it three times. I'm excited to to look at this verse more in depth, actually. and We'll do that when we consider 1 Peter 13 to 15. My plan is to do that, at least. But that's what Peter's doing here in 2 Peter. He's at the end of his life, and he's being obedient to what Jesus said. He's feeding his sheep. This is food we need, saints. This is daily bread that sustains us through the faith God gives us. So I'm excited to get to this book with you all. So let's turn our attention now to verse 1. So 2 Peter 1 begins, Simeon, or Simon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for now. The author of this book is Peter the Peter that we know and we're all familiar with from the gospel accounts from Acts and from First Peter. I believe that with all of my being, even though some teachers that I respect and would honor, like Richard bockham would say otherwise. In, in the course of history, and especially modernly, This book has been the subject of controversy concerning its author. We actually talked about this a little bit um, by the Lord's good providence in our Sunday school class this morning. But if I had an extra 30 or 40 minutes, I would go over those arguments and explain why I don't think they add up. But it's interesting to note here, at least, that we read Simeon Peter, which is not usually how we think of Simon Peter. And what I want for us to be clear is, is that Simeon Peter is the same person as Simon Peter. Some translations actually just say Simon Peter, even. If you have the NASB, the NIV, the the King James Version, or the New King James Version, uh, and I'm sure others as well, you know what I'm talking about. It just says Simon Peter. But here in the ESV, it says Simeon Peter. It's very strange. Only one other place in the New Testament is he referred to this way, and it's Acts 15, 14. And it's interesting, by the way. All those other translations I just mentioned all say Simeon. They're in Acts 15, rather than Simon, with the exception of the New King James Version. Uh, Sometimes translation methodology can be confusing to me. But what I think we have here is a testimony showing that the Apostle Peter is in fact the author of the letter. Simeon is simply the Hebraic form of the name. That's why it's used in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, where many people from different areas had come and gathered together because there would be Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramaic speakers there. Uh, this is here in Second Peter, is showing his bilingualism, and the th- that would make some sense also considering the scope of his audience. More on that in a moment. But the important thing to note is that this Simeon Peter is Peter. It's Petrus. This is Simon Peter. The apostle, one of the twelve, even chief among the twelve. Chief among equals of the twelve. And so we read, Peter was a servant and an apostle. You see that in verse 1. And what comes to mind with these two words? Servant and apostle. These are words he's using to describe himself. Apostle. What comes to mind when we think of an apostle? someone who has authority, a leader, a boldness, someone who's foundational to the church's doctrine, someone who's important, that's apostleship. You think of the word servant, that's a little bit different, right? Even sounds different. Apostle sounds tough, servant sounds kind of meek. You think of someone who's under authority, someone who submits, someone who's passive, someone who's Maybe not as important. Someone who, instead of leading, follows. Instead of giving orders, they take orders. An apostle and a servant. Peter knew that he was both. And even more, this is how he wants to describe himself at the end of his life. Look at verse 13 in 2 Peter 1. There he writes... I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter knows he's going to be dying, and he says soon there in that text. History tells us it was 68 AD, shortly after this, we believe, was written, He dies under Nero. He knows that this may be his last correspondence to the churches. He dies under persecution from the government. And so toward the end of his life, how does the apostle describe himself? How does he want to be remembered? Servant and apostle. Both things. Two words. Servant is the Greek word doulos. It actually means slave. I'm sure some of you know that. It's one of lowly position, of course. One under authority and derived authority, if if any. But in the church, it was a term of honor. A term of honor that traces back into the Old Testament. To be a servant of God was no small matter. This was a great title of honor, to be a servant of God, even a slave of God. See, it matters, and it makes all the difference in the world, whose slave you are. All people are slaves to something. Slaves to sin, certainly. Slaves to the fallen self apart from Christ, ultimately. And that leads to death. But oh, how wonderful is it to actually be the slave of God, the slave of Jesus Christ, which is what Peter proclaims here. You are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't, want to be a slave who wouldn't want to serve the lord of the universe what better position is there i'm just a slave and my master made everything well that's that's really good and he rules you and he rules everything so when peter says i'm a doulos it's not him self depreciating but he's saying my position is one of service i'm, I'm here to serve my master further I'm here to carry out my master's orders, to deliver his message, to accomplish his goals, to work for his honor above my own. That's what it means to be a doulos. It's a wonderful thing. And Peter also says that he's an apostle, an apostolos, one who was sent. Uh, this is, you know, the, you know, the technical sense of the term. It's the office, in other words. There's a more general sense of Apollo, of, an, uh, of an apostle as one who is sent out like Barnabas. Don't be confused with the modern charismatic churches who uses this term. That's meaning something totally different. That's not really a biblical concept, but we don't have time to get into that right now. But even this lesser term of, apostles, one who, of an apostle, one who is just sent, that's not really what is getting at here. This is, a, this is a capital A apostle, one who had been with Christ, one who was a witness of the resurrected Christ, and specifically commissioned by Christ. They, and no one since them have laid the foundation of the church. Apostles slash prophets, really, they were the ones who wore the prophetic mantle in the New Covenant, kind of like Isaiah did and Hosea did in the Old Covenant. The foundation of the church is built by the apostles and the prophets we read in Ephesians 2. And Peter is saying with this word, he's saying my position is one of authority. I teach, I judge, I lead. I'm uniquely called, uniquely gifted and commissioned by Christ himself. And he has no problem saying both of these things. Doulos and apostolos, slave and apostle. Most of us, especially when we aren't thinking of it, tend to lean into one of these positions, whether or not we realize it. Some emphasize servanthood. We're called to be servants, slaves. That's absolutely true, and, and it's a good thing. But often people do it in an unhealthy way. And they get taken advantage of. They don't really make decisions. They don't really believe in authority. And they live this passive, unattached, and uncommitted life. Others, though, and this is unhealthy too, they just want that power. It's all about them having the authority. And they're attracted to a Christianity that is strong and influential and powerful, which it is. But if that's all that it is, it's incomplete. Usually narcissistic types of people are like this, and they end up abusing that power. But we should never forget, church, that the first leaders in the church describe themselves as slaves and apostles. They were servants and leaders. They knew their guilt and they knew the grace of the Lord. They knew where they had come from and they, and they knew who they were now in Christ. They remained humble even in light of leading because Peter here, he has to speak authoritatively. He's speaking to the church under the authority of Christ concerning false teachers that were doing damage to Christ's church. But at the same time, he doesn't forget that he's also part of that church that he's also under Christ. Christ only is the Lord. Amen. But here's what he wants us to be. He wants us to be strong, but then to use your strength to serve. Be strong, okay? You have gifts. If you are a Christian this morning, God has blessed you with gifts, and he wants you to use those in light of service to the church. He wants you to make decisions. And not all are called to be leaders in the church, but... Everyone is called to be a leader in some sort of capacity in their life, whether it's at work or church, in the family, or just even for you kids, a situation on the playground or your your baseball team, your softball team, where some kids are getting bullied and picked on. God's calling you to be a leader right there. Stand up for the weak in those situations, right? We all have times to be a leader and where you have to be strong. We all have times when we should be serving as well the main point that Peter wants to make here is that we should use our strength to serve. I Think of the kings in the Old Testament. Perfect examples of, of how this goes wrong, right? And many of them are just tyrants even. Uh, think of Saul who, has, who believes that he has the right to act like an old covenant priest and he offers an offering and that ends up having the kingdom pulled away, pulled away from him. Or Rehoboam who wants to put a heavy yoke on people you know, just acting like a bully, a thug, using his power to hurt. And most of the kings, they don't, in the Old Testament, they don't exist to serve others. They exist to puff themselves up, to amass treasure for themselves, the very things God warned them that a earthly king would do in 1 Samuel. And part of a calling, though, as Christians is to serve Christ and to serve others no matter what we have, and we're to do so with the strength that God has given to us. But at the same time, these big, tough kings with power uh, were actually, they're little wimps, to be honest. Even Rehoboam, Solomon's son, remember how he started his reign in 1 Kings 12? He told the people that the yoke of his pinky finger was going to be greater than his father's thighs, and that's some, that's some big talk, some big talk from a king, but, and his father is Solomon, remember? But you remember the reason that he said this? It's because he was such a pushover with his friends. Some elders, before some elderly gentlemen in the community gave him godly advice, told him to, hey, lessen the load. The people will love you for this. They'll respect you and they'll follow you. And they gave him that humble advice, but he chose to take the advice of his knucklehead friends. It wasn't strength. It was stupidity. And so many of the bad kings, they were under the thumb of others. Wicked mothers, wicked spouses, Jezebel, right? We just need to say her name. Or as soon as the godly high priest died, then the whole kingdom tanked and because They didn't end up having a backbone. And in church, people sometimes don't get this. Now, thankfully, this church has been blessed because so many of you do get this, I think. There's a lot of churches where people don't get this, that just as many people can be hurt by the absence of strength as they can be with the abuse of strength. The absence of strength is just as dangerous as the abuse of strength. It happens in both directions and people get hurt both ways. I mean, how many churches today have failed have someone stand up and say, No, the Bible does not teach homosexuality is okay? How many churches have just buckled under that pressure when the pastor gets up and, and, and makes it seem as if that is allowed? How many churches today have failed to have someone stand up and say, No, critical race theory is in fact racist and opposed to the reconciliation given in the gospel? It's, those things are destroying churches. Where are the Phineases today who, like him, will take a spear and instead of thrusting it through an Israelite and a pagan to stop God's plague, will have a backbone and say, no, God's word forbids this. And will stop the slide into apostasy. We need those men and women. We need strength that is serving. Because when these things don't happen, it's not long before these churches are no longer churches. They become synagogues of Satan. And we see it happening at a grand scale in our nation right now. This happens. It is happening. Because no one is willing to take a stand. No one is willing to do anything unpopular. No one wants to make waves. It's it's like me, like me, like me. Uh, Don't upset, don't upset, don't upset. And people end up being just as hurt and having massive injustices happen because of that mentality just as well as the other when you abuse strength. And we look to Christ, right, for the example of how this ultimately is to be seen. He is the model for us in this. He was humble. He was lowly. His yoke, easy. His burden, light. He's gentle with sinners, welcoming to children. Yet he flipped the money tables in the temple. He took a whip to thieves in the temple. He had no patience for false doctrine and false teachers. There needs to be both aspects servanthood and strength. And serving, serving through that strength. Amen. Verse 1 continues to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Uh, this is an amazing statement on a number of levels. The faith we have is of equal standing with the apostles. This faith, this ancient and apostolic faith, It begins with creation. It precedes it even, being that God is eternal. He's without beginning. God carries it along through covenants. Prophets write it down. Apostles continue that tradition. Ephesians 2.20, if you look there, if you don't just memorize it, if you haven't memorized it, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Think of what that means. Christ Jesus was not only influencing the apostles, but also the prophets of old. And once the foundation is built, it's done. There's no no rebuilding it at that point. It's not repeatable unless that other previous foundation is destroyed. And the house, the church, it's built on top of that. And the church, which is made up of people depending upon Christ for salvation, which at a fundamental level must include only true believers, it must then extend all the way back to the Garden of Eden, including all of those who ever believe, because Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. This is what Peter is writing about. This is what he's seeking to defend our ancient and apostolic faith. Jude, which I mentioned, is very similar to Second Peter, chapter two, especially. He begins his letter by saying that he, he had desired to write to them about the excellencies of Christ, but he found it more necessary. To write to them to defend the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. Implications abound here. First, though, notice how this starts here based off of this verse in 2 Peter. The second half of verse 1 says, To those. So, in other words, the original audience, first, we should think of them. I don't know exactly who Peter has in mind here. He doesn't tell us exactly. 2 Peter 3.1 says this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So it could then be the same audience as 1 Peter. If that's the case, it's to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, which again would explain why the start of this letter, 2 Peter, why he uses the, the name Simeon Peter, because he's, wanting, he's writing to such a large audience that it would have um, Hebraic speakers in, the, in its reception. Whatever it is, he's writing to some churches, and as well then, to Christians in this present age, the last days, the time in between Christ's ascension and his bodily second coming at the end of the age, which would then include any Christian living after he wrote this, including then us. And he says, look what he says, again, this is amazing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So who is the ours? I and mean, does, does Peter have a mouse in his pocket? You could guess correctly, I think, based off of the text in verse 1 alone. But, but look at the context below in 2 Peter. Look down at verse 16. He says, For we, we, plural, do not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty and his glory. He's speaking about his fellow apostles who are witnesses who have taught, who have passed on this message. So the comparison is here with Christians out there in the churches scattered abroad, meaning your faith is of equal standing with the apostles. What does that word faith mean? It's not some unknown, mysterious thing, some blind thing. We need to reject the notion of a blind faith. That's mysticism sneaking into the church. Faith is actually something that we are to be sure of, a saving faith especially. Think of the word confidence even. We all know what that word means. It's confide in the Latin, con meaning with, fide meaning faith. Faith is not some blind, unknown thing. It's a it's a sure thing. The Reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, they spoke of saving faith in three categories. Number one has having knowledge. One must know the basic information or the content, such as Christ's death and resurrection, and understood not just in the head, but also in the heart as well too. And then the second category is assent. One must agree that the basic information is correct. In other words, He or she must not only have heard that Christ died and rose again, but they must believe that he did actually do that. And then, thirdly, confidence. One must have a personal trust in Christ and to rest on the knowledge that the content and be content to which he or she believes is sufficient to save. So, three categories. Those are on the outline for you, too, as well, along with the Latin. But in other words, saving faith, which is certainly what's in view here, is all centered on actually knowing the object of our faith. It's not some blind shot in the dark. It's centered on the object of our faith, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying that you have obtained a faith of equal standing, that you have, in other words, the same union with Christ that the apostles themselves did. And don't get thrown off by this word obtained. Like, I have obtained a passport, meaning I had to do certain things to get it. That's not what this means. What the word means, if you look it up in the Greek dictionary, it, it says that it's obtained by a drawing of lots. The word is used three other times in the New Testament, and each time that it's used, it's always meaning that, to be obtained by drawing of lots. Uh, you know, lots is kind of like we think maybe of chance, like how they decided who would be the, the next apostle to replace Judas. Now, this doesn't mean that when you got your faith, it was be- just because God was just, you know, just rolling the dice, that's not what that means. What it speaks to is the fact that this faith is having is that you have is something that you have because it has been given to you. It fell on your lot. The LSB, Legacy Standard Bible translate this verse better, I believe. It reads, "To those who have received the same kind of faith as ours." So, don't think obtained, I thought and I got it. No, this is something that is handed to you. Something received just as it is. Faith itself is a gift, in other words. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary, says this. The statement is remarkable indeed. Faith, which is necessary for salvation, is a divine gift. It cannot be produced, it cannot be produced by the mere will of human beings, but it must be received from God himself. He appointed, as it were, by lot, that Peter's readers would receive such faith. Knowledge, assent... Confidence in Christ is not something you figure out yourself. Faith is a gift. The statement is even more clear here than it is in Ephesians 2.8, which is usually my go-to text for that typically, the idea that faith is a gift. But then this verse also goes on to say, We have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the clearest statements of Jesus' divinity in the New Testament, and it mentions His Righteousness. This is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Some commentators think that this just means that God is fair. That's simply what it's saying, that he is righteous. uh, That he's, he's fair to give you a faith of equal standing with the apostles. But that doesn't seem to be keeping in line with what the way righteousness is used, usually in the New Testament, the way it's actually always used. In fact, it's better to understand this as God's saving righteousness. And the source of God's saving righteousness is Jesus Christ. Whenever righteousness is used with God, it refers to this saving dimension of his steadfast love and faithfulness. In the Old Testament, it parallels, his righteousness parallels salvation. So the fact that we can have this equal standing with the apostles through faith is due to the righteous work of God through Christ on our behalf. That's what he's saying. So to put this all together is an absolutely amazing, incredible verse. Peter not just an apostle. Yes, he was in the inner circle of apostles even. I mean, he was there, he says in verse 16 and following, he was there on on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice boomed from heaven in majestic glory. This is better than any sort of celebrity pastor or Christian superstar, I would think. You don't get any higher up this mountain of importance as being on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ experienced and was and that was done to him then. Peter even walked on water for a quick minute. Uh, he, he saw Jesus again. He saw him transfigured. He met Moses and Elijah in person. I mean, he helped to start a church. What church? Well, the church in light of the new covenant. Uh, this Peter is chief among equals among the 12 apostles. He says, I have a faith equal to yours. It's like Jesus' words in John 20, 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not yet seen me and yet believe. Uh, You see what Peter is doing. He knows he's going to die. Talked about that a little bit already. He knows he's not going to be able to advise the churches soon. And what better encouragement could you give as a friend, as a fellow Christian, or even better as an apostle? Imagine what they all must have been thinking. Well, how are we going to replace Peter? Uh, he, tell, he could tell us what Jesus was like. He could even tell us what Jesus looked like. He knows all the stories. He was there from the beginning, essentially. He saw the betrayal, and the, the crucifixion. He saw Jesus in the resurrection. This is Peter. He performed miracles. He gave scripture. He's going to die. And Peter says, I know. And you have a faith of equal standing with me. Don't worry. By the way, this is a good place to bring up to our Roman Catholic friends if they want to argue that Peter was the Pope. Because Peter is saying, although he was an apostle, he's not denying that. He also was a slave. And guess what? He's not any more spiritual than anyone else. We all have a faith of equal standing. All based on one who is greater than everyone else, Christ Jesus the Lord. And know what this does, brothers and sisters? This absolutely crushes our pride and it repairs our low view of ourselves. This notion, this reality, that we all have a faith of equal standing, it does that. Inevitably, whether we realize it or not, we are all always comparing ourselves to others. We're tempted to it. But God looks at us based on faith, whereas we look at each other based upon works. Not that works are bad, of course. They're not. We should abound in them. But may our only boast ever be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. No matter how many books you've read, no matter how many sermons you've listened to, there's no room for pride. And those who haven't read books, those who don't know the doctrines... In their view, you know, everyone seems to have it all together, but then they just feel lost sometimes. Well, this verse reminds us that there's no second-class Christians. We are equals. Sinners saved by grace, having obtained a faith of equal standing. It's all a gift. And yes, there are different states of sanctification. Yes, there are different rates of growth in Christian life. But guess what? No one is better than anyone else. Christ is all in all, friends. We, have, we all have the same kind of faith, a faith with equal standing. Pastors aren't any better than brand new converts. It's a faith of equal standing. And the object of that faith is Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why it's equal, because it's all based on Him. It's who He is and what He has done. Now notice the end of verse 2. <coughs> to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. There are two designations for one person here. Not two designations for two persons, but there's two designations for one person. God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's not saying here, our God we have, we have God, and then also we have Jesus Christ. Now he's going to distinguish in the next verse, but that's not what he's saying right here. Here it's two designations for one person. Again, this is one of the clearest points in the New Testament that tells us of Jesus' divinity. This is consistent with the whole epistle. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. At the end of the verse, we read, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or look at chapter 2, verse 20. For if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then again, look at chapter 3 especially, chapter 3 actually, um, verse 18, there the very last verse, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I say especially this one because it's almost identical to the beginning of the book. It's what's called an inclusio. It sandwiches the book together with the same phrase. And so there you read again, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Everyone recognizes that there are two designations for one person in those verses. You go back to verse one, verse two is going to say, multiply grace and peace in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. But verse 1 says the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very similar constructions all the way through this book. This is one person described with two titles. This is one of five explicit verses in the New Testament where Jesus is called God. That is the declaration of the New Testament. It's right there. Now, there's lots of other reasons to believe in the deity of Christ. The fact that he was worshipped. Uh, the fact that he's attributed with the same titles as God, the fact that he fulfilled Old Testament scriptures, his very own allusions during his earthly ministry, and on and on and on. But here it says, The righteousness of our God, our God Jesus Christ. He's our Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. Two titles that the early church had, Jesus Christ, God, Jesus Christ, Savior, And we still affirm affirm those now in our ancient and apostolic faith. So Jesus is God. And it also, Peter distinguishes here look at verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Two different persons. You can sort of tell me English just by the word of. But there's a rule in Greek grammar that has to do with a definite article. The definite article here is the word of. When the definite article is repeated as it, here, as it is here in verse 2, it's indicating, it's always indicating that there are two different persons in view. When there's only one definite article governing the whole phrase, the whole clause, like it is with verse 1, then that's indicating one person. So in verse 1, two separate persons or one person, God and Savior Jesus Christ? One person, right? One person there. But now in verse 2, it would be clear that God is one person, And Jesus is another person. But listen, Peter's not stupid. He's not dumb. He's not contradicting himself within the space of a few words. He says in verse 1, Jesus Christ is God. Verse 2, there's God and also Jesus Christ our Lord. He's not saying that Jesus isn't God now. But what we are seeing here are insights into the doctrine of the Trinity. It's texts like this that would become very, very important to the church in in just a few hundred years when heresy and apostasy concerning theology proper became rampant. It's not a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity yet, but there is a clear distinguishing of the triune Godhead here, two members of it at least, that Jesus, Peter understands, can be called God, and yet in another sense, he is distinguished from God, here thinking of God the Father. Christ is fully divine, verse 1, and yet there are, there are more than one person in the Godhead, so that God the Son is not identical with God the Father. They are of the same essence, they share the same glory, the same power, the same substance, all of their attributes are shared, yet there are two persons. The whole Christian faith depends upon this, that Jesus Christ is our God and that He came in the flesh, and that He was also distinct from God our Father. And lastly, the first part of verse 2, May grace be, and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This benediction It's not merely an introductory formula. These aren't empty words. Neither are they empty words when we say them during the greeting portion of our services. It's a statement of what Peter really wants to see happen here in this letter. We know that also, again, because of the inclusio, he mentions the same phrase nearly at the, at the very end of the book. And don't miss this. He pictures grace and peace in verse 2 as something that comes to us from God. They are not ours by nature or by, or by right. They come to us from outside of ourselves. And Peter desires that they may come in great measure. Peter's great longing then and mine now is that we all might abound in grace and in peace, that God might multiply it to us, that we might grow in it, and there might be great peace within and without us. But probably... The most important thing to notice in verse 2 is that God's grace and peace are multiplied in or through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, who is God. It's personal. It's relational. Mine isn't for you. Yours isn't for mine. And it doesn't just happen without some means, without some instrument. Peter cannot get past his second sentence without exposing this conviction, namely that knowing God is the means by which grace and peace grow in our lives, by which it is multiplied in our lives. And what a lovely reality that is then, brothers and sisters, that God is infinite in being and perfection, as the Second London Confession says, that we all, no matter who we are, no matter what we know, will always still have room to have that knowledge grow and that our peace and our grace in God and in Jesus will grow in light of that. And no matter where we are in that knowledge, God sees us all as his children having an ancient and apostolic faith all based on who Jesus is and what he has done all on equal standing all praise and glory to him church let's pray and then we'll prepare to take the Lord's Supper together our father we thank you for this word this morning and for the grace that abounds to us in Christ, we do ask and pray that you would, through the knowledge of you, in the study that we receive in the study of your word, that you would cause grace and peace to multiply in each of our lives, that we would be fully satisfied in joy and at rest and simply be in your people. What, a, what an encouragement it is to know, Lord, that Jesus is the object of our faith and that we all stand on equal ground in that regard. Our justification is all the same. We know that our works don't contribute to it. It is all based upon who Christ is and what he has done. So we thank you for the covenant of redemption. We thank you for this book, 2 Peter, and we pray that as we study it and study through Hosea, you would cause us to know you more. So again, that Grace and peace might multiply in our lives, all for Christ's glory's sake. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.